We had concluded our review last Wednesday with the discussion of the influence of school and work experience on adolescent development. This is slot 10 of the review deck that I recently posted. And so now let's turn to the factors that influence adolescent achievement. And when we speak of achievement, we're not strictly speaking of academic achievement, though because school is a central part of the typical American adolescence experience, academic achievement is certainly part of that. We may also be referring to athletic achievement, to achievement in the arts, to achievement in the domain of community service. So someone who is a mediocre student might nonetheless be someone we consider to have great achievements because of his or her participation in scouting and many accomplishments in the domain of scouting or because of his or her involvement in other community organizations in which adolescents are involved in activities that promote the welfare of the communities they live in, that promote the preservation and enhancement of the environment, um, or any similar constructive engagement. Family factors are certainly among the most potent, beginning with the base of a securely attached relationship. Parents who use either a traditional pattern of behavior or authoritative parenting are also more likely to raise adolescents who achieve significant goals in one or more domains of their life that are important to them. And again, I want to stress that we're not strictly or only talking about academic achievement. The values that parents convey to their children through their explicit teaching of values through the example of their behavior that is consistent with their values also contribute to adolescent achievement. Conversely, where parents' behavior is at variance with the values that they verbally espouse or where parents disparage achievement, disparage involvement, and by example, indicate that they either believe they are not capable of contributing to the society, the groups within which they live, or that they have so much disdain for those groups or fear of those groups that they don't attempt to participate, attempt to contribute. Those parenting lessons explicit and implicit also influence the behavior and the aspirations of adolescents. And the behavior of parental monitoring is particularly important 
in influencing whether adolescents um, persist in school um, and um, how well they do in school. The sufficiently self-motivated student uh, needs less and less monitoring, but typically the patterns that lead to academic achievement um, have been developed in part because of earlier parental monitoring. Children whose involvement with schoolwork is appropriately monitored develop internal monitors that serve as guides for their behavior, for their work habits, um, all of which contribute to academic achievement. Peers, of course, are also significant factors. Achievement-related behaviors, whether these are in athletics or in academics or in the arts, um, are contagious. Attitudes are contagious. Adolescents who are close to peers, whose behavior and whose explicit attitudes support achievement in a particular domain, are likely to emulate those behaviors, are likely to up their game in whatever domain of activity that we're talking about. So, the choice of peers is another significant influence on behavior. And again, um, here there is choice, so there is the um, reflection of the idea that adolescents play significant roles in contributing to their own development. Um, their choice of peers is one of the ways. Of course, Peers who are chosen may not be peers who reciprocate and accept a peer, um, but where we have reciprocal peer relationships, they tend to be uh, very influential relationships, improving upon adolescents' strengths um, and increasing their weaknesses, increasing their problematic behaviors if those are also exhibited by the peers. The way that schools maintain their culture, the way they're structured, the way the curriculum is structured, can also influence the types of performance goals in terms of academics that students set for themselves, whether they are primarily performance goals or mastery goals. As it turns out, students may have both to some extent. Students who have performance goals may on average have higher GPAs than those who have mastery goals. Uh, but those who have mastery goals have typically different lifelong patterns of learning. You're more likely to see people with strong performance goals that are much stronger than their mastery goals pursuing careers and professions such as medicine or law. And, and students who have strong mastery goals 
um, and performance goals as well, but with more emphasis on mastery goals, um, pursuing careers as academics and as teachers. So performance goals are focused on how the individual performs in a particular domain relative to others. Um, performance goals are other referenced goals. Mastery goals are goals for improving one's performance over one's past performance. These are self-referenced goals. In general, uh, people who have self-referenced goals tend to be happier with their accomplishments, happier with their careers as adults than do those who primarily have other reference goals. So the, the type of goals for academic intellectual achievement in particular that schools encourage or discourage, um, support or discourage, uh, do have long-lasting consequences or influences for ultimate adult adjustment. A relatively robust finding is that on average, students from middle and upper class homes achieve at higher levels, um, certainly academically, than do students from families at a lower socioeconomic status. Remember, socioeconomic status is a function of many things, but the two primary are most heavily weighted um, components of socioeconomic status are the amount of education required for an occupation, the occupational status associated with it, and the income associated with it. While these tend to be highly correlated, they are not perfectly correlated. Adolescents who grow up in middle and upper income families, middle and upper income socioeconomic status families, tend to have a number of advantages over students who grow up in lower socioeconomic status families. They typically have better health, have better access to health care. They have um, enhanced cultural capital. Cultural capital refers to things like frequent access to libraries, to museums, to concerts, to zoos. So experiences that a family involves their children in, involves their adolescents in, that promote learning, that promote curiosity, uh, enhancing and often going beyond what it is children learn in school. Additionally, children in lower socioeconomic status households are more likely to live in neighborhoods in which there are sources of neighborhood stress, housing instability, transience of many residents, um, less access to uh, healthy food, 
schools tend to be poorer, the quality of teachers in many poorer school district schools is lower than in higher income school districts. The state of facilities, the availability of lab equipment, even the availability of something as basic as textbooks may be compromised in a school district that serves primarily lower income students. In addition, students who were members of racial minorities may endure the continual experience of stereotype threat in academic performance situations. Stereotype threat exists when one is aware of a negative stereotype about one's group in a situation that activates that stereotype. And academic achievement, um, academic performance assessment situations may be one such situation for members of racial minorities. Stereotype threat, of course, can also operate against females regardless of their racial or ethnic group because of the existence of stereotypes uh, that women are not good at math, that women are not good at physics, that women are not good at the other sciences. So the, the basic idea is that in a performance situation where rapidity of access to knowledge where the ability to maintain focused attention is important. If stereotype threat occurs, then one is anxious that one's behavior will conform to and confirm a stereotype. And that anxiety interferes with attention, interferes with the workings of working memory, or, which would be involved in access to knowledge and that these combine to impair performance. The empirical evidence for stereotype threat um, is fairly robust. The same types of assessments administered under conditions that activate stereotype threat for African Americans, for Hispanics, for women, People perform more poorly in situations where stereotype threat is activated, where group membership and stereotype are salient. In situations where uh, nothing is believed to be at stake, where stereotypes and group performance anxieties are not activated, you don't see those same performance differences. Another set of factors um, that influence achievement are internal to the students, and these include motivational patterns and attributional patterns. And we've, we've discussed some of uh, this in terms of performance goals and mastery goals. Another way of looking at goals is in terms of what it is that people are motivated to do. In the realm of academics, but this could also apply to uh, 
achievement in the arts, achievement in athletics, achievements in service. People may be motivated by a motive for success. That is, they want to experience the positive emotions, the satisfaction, even the pride that come from successful performance of a set of tasks that come from successful accomplishment of a goal. Students, in contrast, may be motivated primarily by motive to avoid failure, to avoid the unpleasant experiences that come from failing at a task, from failing to meet a goal. How it is that individuals relate their performance, relate their effort to accomplishment of goals matters. If people believe that their ability to achieve goals depends primarily on how hard they work, how long they persist toward a goals, the strategies they use in pursuit of a goal. And it is a goal that they value for itself. They tend to ultimately be much more likely to accomplish that goal. And that pattern of thought that my accomplishments depend on me, my accomplishments depend on what I do, is more associated with motivation for success. In contrast, motivation to avoid failure may result in a number of maladaptive behaviors. Someone who is motivated to avoid failure may fail but construct a situation in a way that in their own mind they can deflect accountability for their failure. We sometimes refer to this as self-handicapping. So the individual who doesn't study, the individual who chooses to party rather than study, the individual who chooses not to practice before a recital, then can explain the performance in terms of what didn't happen rather than the potentially more ego-damaging explanation of, I couldn't do it. Where students pursue goals, where adolescents pursue goals, because the behaviors involved in striving for a goal are in and of themselves enjoyable and rewarding behaviors, we say that they are intrinsically motivated. Where students engage in performance of some activity because they expect a reward for it or they expect to be able to avoid some negative consequence by engaging in that activity, we say they are extrinsically motivated. Intrinsic motivation is typically associated with higher levels of accomplishment um, in any given domain than is extrinsic motivation. Another related set of factors uh, is attribution. 
and particularly self-attributions and situational attributions. Where people say that the causes of my failure were my lack of um, effort, they're more likely, if the goal is a valued one in a subsequent situation, to put in more effort. However, where students attribute their difficulty, their failure to other people, to um, stable characteristics of the environment, they are less likely to change their effort, they're less likely to achieve within a particular domain. So where students attribute success and failure to their own efforts, to the relationship between their effort and um, difficulties of a task that may vary from situation to situation, and see choice of tasks and choice of effort as controllable, they're likely to be higher achievers. Within positive psychology, um, there's a concern for um, developing the capable adolescent self. And the capable adolescent is one who has relatively high um, trait level of self-esteem. It may go up and down um, temporarily, but they basically feel good about themselves. They have a high sense of self-efficacy. That is, they believe they can choose achievable goals for themselves and control their effort and their attention so that they can do the things necessary over time to achieve their goals. They have good self-regulatory skills so that they can delay fun, delay gratification, and engage in the appropriate goal-directed behaviors. Um, they have self-regulatory skills that enable them to control behaviors that might lead to social difficulties with peers, with school authorities, um, and the self-regulatory skills to manage negative emotions. So they may experience disappointment if their efforts don't lead to success at a goal, but that disappointment doesn't become catastrophic thinking, I'll never be able to do this, I'll always fail. Rather, uh, they engage in some problem-focused coping skills, perhaps some emotion-focused coping skills, and then go on to change how it is. They pursue the goal, or they may change the goal and say, I tried, my effort wasn't enough. Realistically, that's not a goal that's appropriate for me. I need to choose a different goal. So they've got the ability to think about themselves, their abilities, the situations they choose to be in, and regulate themselves accordingly. So the capable adolescent has good self-efficacy, has good self-regulatory skills, has 
the metacognitive skills to analyze their performance, whether athletic, artistic, or academic, and adjust what they do according to what their goals are. Another topic considered within the realm of achievement uh, is the career choice that individuals make. Again, there are both micro system um, factors that influence career choice, including parental values about education, including parental modeling of work-related behaviors, including parental expressions of satisfaction or dissatisfaction with various facets of their work experience. But there are also exosystem influences, broad economic and historical trends that have an effect on people's ability to achieve the career goals that they aspire to. So parents may provide access to information, provide access to opportunity, uh, provide good role models in terms of conscientiousness, um, ambition, uh, valuing education and training and self-discipline. And yet individuals can experience significant difficulty because of economic factors, uh, environmental factors that are completely out of the control of individuals. And the final topic we considered um, was flow, that ecstatic experience when you're doing something that you know how to do but that's difficult and doing it well. And the sense of flow can come from musical performance, can come from um, production of a work of visual art, or during production of work of visual art or, or sculpture. Um, it can come during athletic performance. It can come during writing. And we experience flow when there is effort, but our attention is so focused that the effort is not stressfully maintained. It's pleasurably maintained. And we experience ourselves and perhaps others as doing something wonderful and difficult and doing it well. And the next broad topic that we considered was gender. We started by discussing the difference between sex and gender. Sex is purely biological and it's determined by our chromosomes. If we have two X chromosomes, we are female. If we have an X and a Y chromosome, we are male. Gender refers to a broad set of expectations about behaviors, attitudes, and social roles that are appropriate for members of one sex or the other. 
and cultures vary quite greatly in the rigidity or flexibility with which they regard gender roles. Gender for most people is a central aspect of identity. The first thing that we learn about ourselves, of course, is typically our name. We learn whether we're loved or not before we have words for love. But one of the first ascriptions about ourselves that we learn is whether we're a boy or girl because we are typically told you're a precious little girl, you're a beautiful little girl, you're a smart little girl, what a strong little girl, what a clever little boy, what a big boy, what a strong boy, daddy's wonderful boy, over and over and over again. And we possibly, as infants, hear these sex-slash-gender ascriptions nearly as often as we hear our names. So knowing that we are male, knowing that we are female, is a central part of our identity. But knowing our own identity is different from understanding what maleness, what femaleness means in a particular cultural context. Prenatally, if we are male, we are exposed to testosterone in utero, to high levels of testosterone in utero uh, that are produced by the male body. Uh, beginning at about week seven in gestation or pregnancy, the testes of the male uh, increase their output of testosterone resulting in the development of the prototypical structure of male anatomy, scrotum and penis. The testes will descend into the scrotum later in development. Absent that surge of testosterone in week seven, um, female genitalia develop even though the fetus is genetically male. There are several medical conditions that can also complicate the relationship between um, visible sexual anatomy and um, actual genetic um, sex. Congenital adrenal hyperplasia in which there is uh, an excess number of cells in parts of the adrenal cortex that sit atop the kidneys um, result in the production of excess androgens. Female fetuses produce androgens in the adrenal cortex. Male fetuses produce androgens in the testes and the adrenal cortex. So if there is hyperplasia or overgrowth of cells in the adrenal cortex in a female. Um, the female is exposed to unusually high levels of androgens or male hormones. 
and depending on what that level is, depending on when in pregnancy it begins, it may simply masculinize the brain so that we see typically masculine patterns of interests and abilities, or it may masculinize the genitals as well. So there, there are sex differences that extend beyond the obvious anatomical differences. Um, they're not huge, um, but they are real. Those that have been studied the most are the differences in spatial ability, and some spatial abilities, not all spatial abilities, that tend to favor males. Um, a pronounced preference for rough and tumble play, for playing with toys that move, that um, can be used to make things or break things or pretend to kill things and smash things uh, for boys, and the preference for play patterns that involve imitation of adult female patterns of care and nurturing for girls. More recently, researchers using uh, modern neurophysiological neuroimaging techniques have documented differences in the responses of male and female brains to scary things, to fear stimuli, um, and to sexual things. So we particularly in the amygdala and the hypothalamus and parts of the frontal cortex, we see different patterns of response in males and females as they view films of frightening things like amputation or mutilation um, or um, porn films of people copulating. Um, exactly what these different patterns of activity mean is much more speculative, but it's clear that they do exist. So genetics, biology, hormones um, clearly play some biological difference, uh, a biological role in the sex differences that have been observed. Uh, but the environment also plays a role. We begin socializing male and female infants from the moment they're born. Uh, if we know their sex before they're born, we will often have started accumulating girl things or boy things, painting the room pink or blue uh, in anticipation of their femaleness or maleness. We hold females differently than we hold male infants. We typically hold male infants out looking toward the world um, with their backs toward a parent's chest or their head propped over a parent's shoulder and we're far more likely to cradle a female infant so that she's tucked into her mother or father's arm gazing into a mother 
or father's face. So from the earliest days, we are teaching our children by the way we treat them. If they're female, your relatedness to people is fundamental to your experience, to who you are. If you're male, look at the world. Take on the world. Watch the world. The clothes, the toys, um, everything is coded by gender. Um, many books are coded by gender. Ten days or so ago, I've kind of lost track of time at the moment, um, the psych department has a Christmas holiday project um, in which people are um, Santa for an underprivileged child. Um, I, you're given the first name of a child, their age, their clothing size, and a wish that they have for a holiday present. Um, since I have only had sons, I almost always pick a girl because I get to go buy girl things. But every year, girl things are more and more discouraging. The toys that are available for girls clearly communicate that your role as a caretaker of children or your role as um, a slut. No, I didn't say that. Um, a sexual object are, are the choices that are available to you. Uh, so I, I typically buy some of the girl stuff clothes in pink because there aren't a lot of other choices. A doll um, and something that is gender neutral like a Scrabble game. And, and I hope that the things like the Scrabble games will be the ones that are of enduring interest to the children. But I have my doubts. So we, we tell kids that their gender matters and that their sex matters and that their sex either constrains or opens up a world of possibility of limited or unlimited adult roles. Um, Albert Bandura stresses the role in socialization of observing same-sex model. The child knows what their sex is. They've learned that early, so they're motivated to pay particular attention to the behavior of people who are of the same sex. And they observe what happens when models of the same sex um, are behaving. What behaviors, what characteristics of those same-sex models meet with approval, meet with social acceptance, what behaviors meet with being ignored, meet with um, social rejection in any form. And the consequences that they observe for the behavior of same-sex adult models shape their understanding of how women or how men should behave. The behaviors that are rewarded become part of the standards for how 
a male or female should perform the behaviors that are ignored or that meet with any form of social sanction um, are on the no list. Kohlberg had uh, similarly developed a theory of how children uh, come to understand their gendered selves. He suggests that the, the sequence that has been observed by many others uh, of first gender identity, the child knowing their own gender role, their boy, their girl, is followed by an understanding of gender stability. That is, they understand they will remain a boy, they will remain a girl, and is followed by an understanding of gender constancy, which he suggests is parallel to their understanding of Piagetian concrete operations. So this occurs at approximately the time children enter elementary school. Kohlberg suggests that it's only when children understand gender constancy that they become motivated to pay attention to the accepted and rewarded behavior of same-sex models and uh, are motivated to imitate those and form their conception of how to be a good girl, how to be a good female, how to be a good boy, how to be a good man in a gendered sense rather than a moral sense. The problem with that is the children illustrate considerable gender-typed behavior well before they have an understanding of gender stability or gender constancy. But central to Kohlberg's understanding, central to Bandura's understanding, uh, is the idea that children construct gender schemas and understanding of what it means to be male, of what it means to be female. And those schemas guide what they pay attention to, guide what they remember. So that if they observe counter-schema or counter-stereotype behaviors, um, they may simply not pay attention to them and not remember them. Um, a similar approach to the social cognition of gender development comes from Eleanor Maccabee. Maccabee sees much of the source of gender development um, as self-socialization. Children in uh, preschool years who have the opportunity to play with multiple peers uh, typically choose to play with children whose preferences for type of activity are similar to their preferences. And because of characteristic male-female differences in play preferences, when children are in uh, mixed-sex groups, they typically segregate into same-sex groups. 
the typical little girl does not like to um, push and shove and hit and build things and knock things over and bust things apart that she has built that somebody else has built. The typical little boy um, does like to do those things. The typical little girl would rather play with a doll, play with a kitchen set, than play with a truck, than play with an erector set, than build a log cabin. An interesting popular press account of um, a Fisher-Price attempt to develop a, a playhouse that boys and girls would both enjoy. And they ultimately abandoned the effort because little boys and little girls did very different things. Little boys would use doors to flip things, would use the roof um, which had uh, which could lift up on one side as a catapult to throw things across the room where the little girls played house in a, in a fairly predictable way. So Maccabee says self-segregation begins in preschool. So gender segregation, which is strictly voluntary, begins with preschool and then it tends to intensify through childhood. And because of this segregation, um, children develop in-group and out-group ideas. So boys, little boys, will tell you boys are better, boys are smarter. Uh, girls will tell you boys are naughty, boys fight, boys are dirty. So they have negative ascriptions for the other group and more positive descriptions for their own group. With the onset of adolescence, the um, onset of sexual desire, this strict gender segregation um, begins to break apart. Um, with adolescence, though gender segregation begins to break down, the pressure to conform to gender stereotypes strengthens for many. Um, and this is particularly true where parents hold very traditional or stereotyped conceptions of gender. And parents may be very worried about gender atypical behavior, gender atypical interests and activities of their children. Um, the higher the education of the parents, the less likely uh, that is to occur for girls. There's relatively little tolerance, regardless of socioeconomic status, for atypical gender interests, atypical gender behaviors for boys. There's a growing recognition that where the child's gender interests are discrepant from their genetic sexuality, that the child's psychological health is best served by letting them pursue their interests in an environment that is safe, where they won't be subjected to bullying and to ridicule. Uh, but it's very, very hard 
for parents to buck social conventions of a middle school or high school and um, let their son grow his hair, style it in a feminine fashion, or wear a dress. Similarly, peers are not very tolerant of cross-gender behavior, particularly of boys. Um, gender intensification is a phenomenon that um, has some research support, but it's mixed, um, in which adolescents attempt to um, amplify their sexual characteristics, their more mature sexual characteristics, amplify their potential attractiveness to members of the opposite sex if they're boys by uh, developing ripped muscles, um, engaging in uh, various kinds of posturing to show how strong and aggressive and assertive they are. Um, for girls it may be um, more makeup, it may be more revealing clothing, um, and the argument goes that this gender intensification serves several purposes. Um, one is to attract members of the opposite sex, but another is to uh, assert for the adolescent, um, I am heterosexual, I am interested in attracting members of the opposite sex. In adolescence, typically teens who are more stereotypically masculine, more stereotypically feminine, are rated as physically more attractive by their peers. Uh, and acceptance is greater for adolescents whose expression of gender is relatively typical. And again, the strongest trend here is that atypical gendered behavior is much more of a problem for boys than it is for girls. Both parents and peers tend to reject gender nonconformity in boys uh, and be more accepting of it in girls. The sense of self, we're now on slide 20, uh, beginning a discussion of the concept of identity. The sense of self begins to develop in infancy as we experience ourselves cared for by our primary caretakers, who most typically are parents, um, often only a mother, or a mother and a grandmother, or a mother and aunts. Um, but these significant caretakers tell us who we are. They tell us how valuable we are, how loved and cherished we are, or not depending on how sensitively they respond to us, how quickly they respond to us when we express distress or when we bid for their intention. John Bowlby referred to this internal conception of the self of 
the caring or not so caring attachment figures and of expectations that develop for relationships with significant others as the internal working model. And the internal working model is really core to many aspects of, of adjustment according to attachment theory and its many advocates. Um, the internal working model is the foundation of the sense of self. Having a sense of self is essential for having healthy relationships with others as friends in childhood, uh, as friends in adolescence, as romantic partners in adolescence and beyond. Um, William James distinguished two senses of self, the um, I-self and the me-self, the uh, um, psychological self that feels, that wills, and decides, and the self that is identified with the body, with the possessions, the clothes, the house, uh, the iPhone, the iPad, maybe not for James. Um, he actually said a man's sense of self includes his house, his horses, his boats, his lands. James lived in a world of rarefied wealth. Uh, but you get the idea. Um, we are our psychological selves and we are our material selves. The sociologist Cooley coined the term looking glass self. That is, we discover who we are through the responses of other people. As infants, we discover that we are lovable. As adolescents, as adults, we may discover that we are sexually desirable. And we learn those things about ourselves, not by virtue of looking in a physical mirror, but by observing and interpreting how other people respond to us. For Freud, the sense of self was primarily the ego and the superego. And these include conscious components um, that regulate the expression of the irrational unconscious, um, always hungry, always um, desirous, always aggressive id. So the ego and the superego include the components of the conscious and thinking self, the verbal self. Adolescent conceptions of self are more complex than those of younger children. Um, adolescents have many more relationships, many more contexts in which they interact with people than do younger children. And initially, as the typical early adolescent notices that they behave differently, that they feel differently in different contexts, um, this is confusing for many young adolescents. I'm shy here, I'm outgoing there, I'm anxious somewhere else, I'm relaxed and calm and funny in yet another context. Uh, but as they mature, 
they understand that these are modulations of behavior that are appropriate for the different contexts. And they have an integrated sense of themselves as responding to different situations. There are stressors in some situations and few supports. There are fewer stressors and much more acceptance within other contexts and they understand that they do behave differently but are fundamentally the same self in all of those contexts. For the adolescent, there's also the emerging question of who could I be? I see adults around me. I like and admire some of what I see. Other people, not so much. Or they may, the adolescent may even be aware that of the people around me, of the adults around me, there are few that I see myself as similar to. There are few that I would want to be like. So the adolescent begins to contemplate the question of who could I be, not just who am I, what am I like, but who could I be? Who should I be? Who do I want to be? An aspect of identity, of course, is evaluative. How do we see ourselves as good, worthwhile, and lovable people? And we can distinguish here between baseline or state self-esteem, fairly stable feelings about one's self-worth, and barometric or state self-esteem, temporary increases, I just got an A, yes, or decreases, I got a C in calculus, I'll lose my scholarship. So self aspects of self-esteem can go up and down depending upon success, failure, acceptance, rejection. But in general, self-esteem in childhood for typically developing children is relatively high. Not that it won't be differentiated across domains of activity, but it's relatively high. And then takes a dip with puberty with the physical changes, the social changes of puberty. And the decline in self-esteem, on average, is greater for girls than it is for boys. A lot of that is tied in to the individual's focus on physical appearance. So for the girl whose focus in terms of self-esteem is on what she looks like how many friends does she have? How approving are her friends of what she looks like and what she does, rather than, say, sports or academics or activities in the arts? Self-esteem is much more likely to take a dip because not all of those things are under individual control. Individual influence, yes. Individual control, no. Where children have fragile self-esteem, um, 
It can be linked to aggressive behavior. It can be linked to um, relational aggression. It can be linked to antisocial behavior. Uh, the conception in psychology for many years was that these negative behaviors are linked to very low self-esteem. Um, what we are more likely to um, find support for today is the idea that the self-esteem of the aggressive adolescent um, has heavy narcissistic components. Um, there may be an inflated sense of self-esteem, but no tolerance for anything that challenges that sense of self-esteem. So it is, it is not experienced as low, it's experienced as high, and anything that threatens it or counters it um, may be met with rejection. Low self-esteem in girls may be associated with internalizing problems, with anxiety, with um, depression. And of course, you can have um, comorbidly both internalizing and externalizing problems. The scholar who is most associated with the concept of self in adolescence is Eric Erickson, and his landmark work in this area was published in the early 60s, um, and the title was Identity, Youth, and Crisis. So the term identity crisis comes to us from Erickson. He argued that the psychosocial developmental challenge of adolescence was choosing an identity versus experiencing identity diffusion. So the task for the adolescent is to decide, what am I going to do with my life, and then begin doing it. Erickson and Marsha um, defined a variety for identity statuses. Uh, these may be stages for some people or terminal um, endpoints. Identity moratorium refers to a status and a stage in which an individual may be given socially sanctioned freedom or may assume for themselves the freedom to explore their various interests, explore possible roles, um, give in to some of their impulses, and if it doesn't fit, move on to try something else. There is not pressure self-imposed, not pressure externally imposed to make a decision. So in this country, high school is a sanctioned identity moratorium. And for many students, college is as well. Uh, in this country, we don't typically begin college with a declared major. We may choose a school of engineering or a school of pharmacy or a school of liberal studies, but there are concentrations within those, and we don't have to elect um, a track within a broad domain initially. But a moratorium, if it lasts forever, uh, results in very 
poor adult adjustment. Another potential phase or endpoint is identity foreclosure. Um, this is a commitment to an identity that has been assigned by some outside authority, quite typically a parental authority. Um, but in some cultures, someone outside the family might make a decision. There are multiple brothers. Okay, you're going to be a cop. You're going to be a fireman. You're going to go to college. You're going to be a priest. So someone else decides for the adolescent what is appropriate for them. And the adolescent says, okay, and proceeds to start doing the things necessary to enact that role without exploring their own interests. So that's identity foreclosure. In identity diffusion, the individual is simply refusing to deal with the fact that they are going to become a physically mature person of whom others will expect adult roles and adult responsibilities. But they're basically in a Peter Pan mode. I don't want to grow up. I don't have to grow up. I can live in Never Never Land and respond to whatever happens next. And another possibility is what some have termed a negative identity. That is um, deliberately choosing behaviors, deliberately choosing modes of self-presentation that are going to outrage someone um, in the immediate environment, typically parents, but also perhaps teachers um, and neighbors. So for the uh, parents who expect preppy demeanor in a child, coming home with a blue mohawk tattoos and multiple piercings would be um, an example of a negative identity. The healthiest outcome is an achieved identity. The individual has considered who his parents are, what his parents believe, how her or his parents behave, and used that as a template, compared the parents with the self, uh, perhaps gone through a moratorium in which several possible selves were tried on, um, different behaviors tried, different belief systems explored, different occupational choices explored, and reached an understanding, this is me, this is the path that I want to take, the path that feels right for me, and has begun enacting the steps necessary to accomplish that adult identity. Um, many of you are the first people in your family to go to college, and you may not have decided on your major yet. Um, typically, with the support of your parents to pursue education, and that may only be emotional, not um, necessarily financial support, um, you've chosen to explore the opportunities that a college education and perhaps a graduate or professional occupation will 
open for you and have not said um, my parent works at Macy's therefore I will work at Macy's. My parent works as a nanny therefore I will work as a nanny. You've said there are other possibilities open to me I am going to explore them I'm going to do the things necessary for an identity that is somewhat different um, occupationally than the identity my parent has chosen. Aspects of identity include social identity and development of a personal morality. Um, social identity refers to the broader groups that I identify with. Um, gender is certainly part of social identity but since gender cuts across all other social categorizations, um, it's typically not considered when people talk about social identity. When people talk about social identity, when psychologists, when sociologists discuss social identity, their focus will be ethnicity, race, religion, occupation, um, something narrower. Um, than gender. Some aspects of social identity are chosen, some are ascribed. But even if we have a social identity that is ascribed, we can identify with other people who share that identity to varying degrees we can hold that identity in varying levels of esteem with consequences for our own internal psychology and adjustment of the esteem within which we hold our group. Um, or we can, even though we are ascribed a status, um, we can distance ourselves from that social identity and from members of those groups. Similarly, um, personal morality, personal standards for what constitutes proper behavior are an important aspect of identity. So ethnic identity refers to a family's cultural background, their attitudes about that background, their values about that background, their behaviors um, that enact cultural identity, putting up a Christmas tree, going to midnight mass, um, lighting a Hanukkah menorah, holding a family Seder, observing the fasts of Ramadan, observing the feasts associated with the end of Ramadan. Those are all um, aspects of ethnicity. Ethnic identity is our understanding of ourself in terms of our ethnicity. And many would argue that ethnic identity development parallels other aspects of identity development. We learn that we're male or female because people tell us we are. We learn that we are Mexican, Irish, Catholic, Jewish because our parents tell us that we are. We learn what that means only over time by observing what's distinctive about that group membership. And we can feel good about it or we can feel bad about it. The postures toward ethnic identity 
that uh, people can choose include assimilation, in which we reject most aspects of our ethnic identity, identify with the values, the behavior, the dress of the majority culture, and this can take people as far as um, changing their names so that their names are not ethnically identifiable. We may separate ourselves from the majority culture and choose to live in an enclave of people who share our ethnic identity and as far as possible um, reject the behaviors, attitudes, even the technology of the majority culture. Um, the Amish, um, the Pennsylvania Dutch in Pennsylvania in many ways have chosen um, separatism, though they participate in the broader economy with their um, furniture making businesses, the dog raising businesses, the food preparation businesses. Uh, they reject things like use of automobiles, uh, like use of electricity indoors. Another status or, or posture in terms of ethnic identity is marginalization, in which a person really feels that they don't fit either within their ethnic identity or the broader culture. Everywhere they go, they experience themselves as an alien, as an outsider. And finally, people may choose biculturalism. They may choose to participate in many aspects of the majority culture while adhering to what they see as the central values, norms, and practices of their ethnic identity. Some people who choose a bicultural identity may um, engage in code switching or language switching. Their attitudes and their behavior switch or change depending on the cultural context in which they're participating. We're socialized to ethnic identity first in our homes, um, second in um, community organizations, whether those be religious institutions or schools or communal organizations, um, and certainly also by the broader culture. Um, we may encounter prejudice. We may develop defense mechanisms against prejudice because of the ways and the places in which we encounter it. All of those are aspects of ethnic socialization. We may learn that to be different in the majority culture carries with it risks, carries with it costs and choose to live with those risks and costs or choose to defend ourselves in various ways against those risks and costs. In terms of moral development, oh, I think we have a slide uh, out of order here. What is listed as slide 27 should be slide 26. Another aspect of identity is our choices about the ways in which we treat people, the ways in which we deal with laws, regulations, such as stopping at traffic lights, not texting while driving, um, 
paying taxes, reporting all of our income honestly so that we pay taxes. So why is it that people choose to act morally or choose to act immorally? And what distinguishes the circumstances in which people may choose to act immorally, who usually act morally. Um, Freud suggests that we act morally because when our superego disapproves of what we've done by making us feel guilty, that it's just awful. So, and we experience painful, racking anxiety. So to avoid the pain of guilt, of the internal disapproving voice of the parent, um, we generally behave according to the standards that we've incorporated from primarily our parents. So Freud would suggest that we behave morally to avoid punishment, but primarily self-inflicted punishment. Um, if you go back a few centuries to Hobbes, um, the Scottish philosopher, um, he basically argued that people behave morally because of fear of the state, because of fear that they will be caught, that they will be prosecuted, that they will be punished. And without fear of the state, people would engage in more or less continuous rape, pillage, and murder. Um, that's a pretty dark view of humanity. Um, certainly darker than Freud's, but the basic idea is morality can be sustained only if there is a, a strong, ever-present threat of punishment. Freud says it's primarily internal. Hobbes says it's primarily external. Um, Hoffman suggests that we behave morally if we have developed a capacity for empathy. And we begin developing a capacity for infant empathy from our infancy <clears throat> based on the extent to which our distress is met with empathy from our parents. So again, um, early years are important contributors to something that's seen as a significant um, factor in moral behavior. Um, recent work in neurobiology, and by recent, I mean the last 20 years, um, <clears throat> centers on mirror neurons um, and many have suggested that mirror neurons play a very central role both in language learning and social learning and in empathy. When we see distress in others um, because mirror neurons are activated when we see the postures and behavior and facial expressions of others, we ourselves experience a diluted form of distress. And that internal experience of distress upon seeing distress, um, we know as empathy. And to reduce our distress, we 
attempt to reduce the stress of others. Now, that explains altruism, that explains helping, that may explain aspects of parental behavior, but it doesn't explain paying your taxes or not cheating on your taxes. Other researchers have stressed the importance of parental disciplinary techniques in developing empathy. And again, empathy is seen as the core of moral behavior. So where parents have attempted by induction, by explaining the consequences, say, of aggression in terms of the pain and discomfort someone else would feel, by explaining that someone who is crying is feeling hurt, is feeling sad, and could be comforted, uh, children are more likely to develop empathy. Where parents have asserted their power, don't do that because I told you not to, rather than don't hit your sister with her doll because it hurts her, uh, but rather don't do that because they said you shouldn't, um, children are less likely to develop empathy. Where parents attempt to manipulate behavior by withdrawal of love, by withdrawal of approval, again, children are less likely to develop a moral sensitivity and empathic sensitivity. So induction, which relies very heavily on parental responsiveness, on parental elaborative explanation of emotionally distressing situations, elaborative explanation and rationale for why one should not engage in certain behaviors, for how one should respond to repair a situation that's hurtful to another that you've caused. Uh, this set of practices, induction, is linked to more mature moral behavior. And the next slide is slide 26, so we're going back. Here, the argument for morality is that we're actually born with some innate moral sense. This is sometimes called universal moral grammar theory. But the basic idea is that we are born with some primitive moral structures, some primitive evaluative understandings. We should not do deliberate harm to another. We should help a suffering other. Our intentions matter. Others' intentions matter. It is not just consequences that matter. Fairness and justice matter. That these primitive moral structures these intuitive responses to social situations um, have been selected for by evolution because they are adaptive for group living. Groups of individuals who have these intuitive moral responses are more likely to thrive, are more likely to have more descendants who will survive to go on and reproduce. Um, similarly, altruism, helping without the expectation of reward, promotes the survival of people who are genetically related to you, because in early human groups, um, most of the people with whom you lived were genetically 
related to you. So the, the idea here is that morality grows out of um, group biology, out of population biology, that moral behavior, some simple moral principles promote um, better adaptation to the difficulties encountered in a hostile world with a hostile environment and potentially groups of other hostile humans.